Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the host galaxies they came from. And I'm Milena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems. You're listening to Episode 23, The Stargazing Automata, Part 3. And this is our third installment of our series on machine learning topics. So let's recap parts one and two. In part one, we covered neural nets, and they use layers of interconnected artificial neurons modeled after the human brain to learn and to think. Alex, what surprised you most about neural nets? I think what surprised me most about neural nets is how quickly we devolved into philosophical discussions about the nature of the brain in connection to artificial intelligence. That surprised you after 23 episodes of the show. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually, I was reading a set of course notes about neural nets recently that specifically gave you a description that had nothing to do with the brain before they would give you the description to do with the brain, Hmm. just so that you could think about it in multiple ways. And I thought that was pretty cool. I think it was the Stanford CS231 course, I think. I appreciate that. It seems like we've been going from most sophisticated to least sophisticated models. We're talking about unsupervised methods here, which are arguably the simplest that we'll be talking about. But we started by talking about neural networks because they're everywhere. Lots of people are using them. And that's, I guess, surprising to me because they're pretty sophisticated machine learning algorithms. Hmm. That's a great take. Let's put a pin in that and come back to it at the end. Sounds good. Um, In part two of this series, we talked about random forests. And random forests work by creating decision trees to classify random subsets of your data set and then democratically voting on the best tree for the overall classification. Melina, when we went through random forests, what is one thing you learned that stood out? Something that I learned that I thought was really useful is that random forests are relatively easy to interpret. Uh, I think oftentimes machine learning algorithms, again, we always think of as black boxes, but it's interesting to see what types of algorithms. It's easy to see how they categorize and, you know, how they make the decisions that they make. And I think random forests are a nice way to maybe start with that intuition. I appreciate that a lot because in reading those papers, I definitely got a feel for the results more than in the neural nets where Mm -hmm. it's still a little bit unsure exactly how to best represent your findings. Right. Now, moving on to today's topic, as Alex alluded to, we are going to talk about unsupervised learning. Ooh. (laughs) Alex, what would you say your relationship is with authority? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. How much time do we have on this podcast again? Do you thrive in a supervised or unsupervised position? Definitely unsupervised position. Hmm. I think a lot of the solutions I come up with are not solutions that you probably should come up with, that most people would come up with for a particular problem. But I like trying things my way first and then, I guess, kind of iterating toward what most people 
arrive at. So you're saying you get to the common understanding one way or another, but the way that you do it through your own sort of uh, path is worthwhile to you. Definitely. Yeah. I think I, I learn more that way. If I can't find a solution my way that works, then I think I iterate toward the, the mean that most people develop. But I think if I can't do that, it's a lot tougher for me to develop intuition for the problem. That is interesting. Yeah, that's different than I would say I do things, but I haven't really thought about it that much. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm definitely like an efficiency optimization person, so <laughs> probably more supervised. <laughs> I think the idea of unsupervised learning is a little crazy because for a while now we've been using machine learning in various things in astronomy and other areas, and the one constancy of it is you have to train it. So for someone to say, what if we just don't train it, to me is like, that's the whole point of machine learning. Is like you train it, then you apply it. So how was this even developed? Do you guys know? There's a classical example of unsupervised learning from this guy named Donald Hebb from 1992. And he stated that neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's like a very common quote that you'll see on all the pages about supervised or unsupervised learning. And Hebb was actually more of a neuroscientist, so the idea was that certain neurons in the brain are in contact with each other and they regularly interact so that the connection between them becomes stronger. And similarly, the connection between neurons in, for example, an unsupervised neural network can be driven by just the inputs and you're not necessarily training towards something in particular. So the idea here is that no outside stimulus is rewarding the neurons for firing in a certain way and encouraging them to continue in that way. It's just kind of conditioned reflexes. And I think that that's where unsupervised learning actually came from. Do you want to hear a corny Star Trek joke? Love to. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's not as much of a joke as it is a reference, but in Star Trek The Next Generation, one of the most popular characters was named Data, and his whole shtick was he had no emotions. He's very logical and could follow orders, but he had no feelings. Though he clearly developed friendships, and the way he always explained these friendships is that in a computer, pathways that are used most often become the first ones that get used when new data is mm -hmm. available. Something to that effect. So it was a way of kind of saying friendships are, are more important than just emotion. It's, it's built into the fabric of, of everything. And that's, that's kind of, I don't know if that actually relates to what you're saying, but it reminded me of it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the same thing. It's a very wholesome interpretation of what she was saying. Yeah. It's like neurons are making connections. Friends. Friends. Some might say. So supervised learning is a term now that's thrown around a lot because we have the technological capacity to be able to run these sophisticated algorithms. And in contrast, unsupervised learning is like the counterpart to that. But unsupervised learning is actually really old. So because you don't have the supervised training of your machine in the way that you do with supervised learning, unsupervised learning is basically just an algorithm where you're learning entirely from your data. And that goes back to linear algebra from like the early 1900s. Yeah. So wow, there, there was a guy named Carl Pearson who in 1901 developed the theory behind, for example, principal component analysis, which we're going to be talking about later today. Uh, mm -hmm. and that has gone by many names, but yeah, it's basically just how do we find the dominant features, the dominant components in our data sets in order to learn from it. So unsupervised learning came first. I guess kind of, I mean, you could also argue in the past people saw patterns in their data sets and therefore 
they continued to try to reproduce such patterns. Okay, that's fair. So it's like a it, chicken and egg problem. Yeah, so yeah. it depends how you define it. But I thought this was much newer, so I'm I'm pleased to learn that it goes back hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're going through a big data set, you know, be it spectra, photometry, you know, any sort of, of data product, and you're trying to identify what's the best machine learning algorithm to use, what is the benefit that unsupervised has? Why would you go to that one? Is it the last resort or is it sort of a first pass? I think unsupervised learning is often used for data exploration. And it's also useful if you aren't necessarily sure what you're looking for. And if you just want to create groups and try to figure out what makes those groups similar to each other. And so, yeah, it's really super unsupervised learning is known for being useful for clustering type problems where you're just trying to find what types of whatever data it is happen Mm -hmm. to have similar properties. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's that one quote, torture the data and it will confess to anything. I forget who said that, but (laughs) I I, I think the problem with supervised learning is that if you go in really hard with an expectation that you'll see something, then it can get easier to see it. Whereas unsupervised learning is like exactly like Melina said, a first pass where you're trying to be as unbiased as possible, looking for what correlations might exist between elements of your data set, and then trying to let that motivate you as opposed to a preconceived notion about what you should find in there. Very cool. Okay, so I guess if you, you, know, you have more data than you know what to do with, and you don't even know where to start with it, you might run it through an unsupervised algorithm just mm-hmm. to see as you explore it. Okay, so when you, when you decide to run an unsupervised, what do you have to decide on? Because you got to make some choices, right? I think it depends on what type of algorithm you want to apply. There are quite a few different unsupervised learning algorithms that are fairly disparate. They're pretty much all just kind of uniform in that they're trying to make groups that you may or may not decide beforehand, for example, how many groups or like what kinds of groups you're looking for. Uh, For example, k-means clustering is one pretty common type of unsupervised learning method where the user asks the algorithm to find k clusters so you decide how many clusters you want such that the sum of the square distances to the cluster centers is minimized so the main point is you're trying to find the centers of these clusters so that you're optimizing your algorithm okay and so then you would have to say oh well i want this many clusters Uh, but then there are other mechanisms where you wouldn't have to decide how many you want it just sort of decides for itself. There's, for example, hierarchical clustering where you start with each of the data points is its own cluster and you iteratively find the closest two clusters and merge them. And then I guess you can just look at any point in your hierarchical cluster tree and try to figure out what patterns came out. It's like classifying living things, right? If you want a broad classification, you'll go Mm -hmm. to the phylum level. If you want a more detailed, you'll go to the, say, order level. Right. Yeah. So there are a lot of algorithms that you can use and it's just sort of a matter of deciding which one you want to use which is the eternal question i'm not sure i could give you an answer without a really specific question that that's a pretty good answer i have to say that that cleared it up a lot for me i think it's time to get into some concrete examples so melina let's go to your astrobite my astrobite is called taking the training wheels off and it's by mia de los reyes about a paper called hawking at all 2018 And the motivation behind this paper was the enormity of recent galaxy survey data sets. 
So for example, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey is a pretty well-known by now data set, uh, it's abbreviated SDSS, that by 2007 had already observed a million galaxies and it's continuing to take data today. At the American Astronomical Society meeting, SDSS was giving out plates from their survey where they had taken spectra of all these different galaxies. Did y'all get a plate? I did. We've talked about this before, I think. Oh, we probably have. I have also <laughs> yeah, got I remember seeing that mailing price and I was like, nah, we're good. <laughs> it was $44 to ship it from Seattle to Boston. Yeah, but we already have. So Yale is part of the SDSS collaboration. And so we have several coffee tables already. Brag. <laughs> How many coffee tables of SDSS spectral plates do you have? I mean, I don't personally None. have one, but. <laughs> but now I will. So suck it. <laughs> So SDSS, awesome survey, has been taking data for a very long time at this point. Um, and there is then a ton of data. And there are a couple of different ways that you can sort data sets that are this huge. Uh, so there are lots and lots of galaxies here. You need to figure out what types of galaxies to put in what bins. And in many cases, it's not too difficult to pick out the morphology of a galaxy by eye, for example. So you can decide, you know, does this look like a spiral or does it look like kind of a more smooth ellipsoidal profile of an elliptical galaxy, which are the two primary classes. So then all we need are armies of people looking at pictures of galaxies <laughs> all day and we're set. Exactly. And that led to the birth of the Galaxy Zoo Project, which was exactly that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so like like what you were saying, it takes a long time for just a couple people to go through a lot of galaxies. And so Galaxy Zoo is this well-known citizen science project where members of the public were asked to visually classify images of galaxies and say what type of galaxy it looked like. Yeah, it was really fun. I, I used to do this when I was bored in high school. I would go really? on the website and, and click through. It's like a game. You know, does it look like this? Does it look like that? Yeah, it's it's boring, but it's cool. <laughs> Scientific advancement. Exciting to some, boring to others. Well, it was a wild success, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it was amazingly successful. It received over 60 million morphological classifications from citizen wow. scientists. And it led to some really incredible discoveries. So if you've ever heard of green pea galaxies, those were actually discovered through the citizen scientists of the Galaxy Zoo project. Uh, these are I don't rare... like green peas. <laughs> like the, the vegetables or the galaxies? <laughs> I don't know what the galaxies are. I don't like the vegetables. <laughs> I like the pods, but once they're out of the pods, no. Good thing we're unsupervised here. <laughs> <laughs> so what are these green pea galaxies? Uh, green pea galaxies are very compact galaxies, so those sort of, you know, green peas are pretty small. These galaxies are less than 5,000 parsecs across, so bigger than peas, but the Milky Way <laughs> is about 32,000 parsecs across, so these are several times smaller. Um, and they're thought to be undergoing very high rates of star formation. They are from when the universe was about three quarters its current age, so they provide like a nice piece to the puzzle of understanding galaxy formation and when star formation was abundant versus less abundant. Peas to the puzzle? Peas to the Ooh, piece, pieces one. of the puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> now, where does the unsupervised learning come in? 
Galaxy Zoo was great for its purposes, but the data sets are getting even bigger. Uh, so SDSS already is pretty huge, but specifically the Vera Rubin Observatory is the impetus for a ton of machine learning uh, methods being brought into astronomy because it's going to be obtaining 15 terabytes of data every single night. And that's Whoa. just so much like uh, humans cannot sift through that quickly at all. And you really, really need machine learning in order to actually take advantage of this entire amazing data set. Uh, So the authors are kind of putting together this method beforehand in order to prepare for Vera Rubin. So they're... Got it. The the motivation is the upcoming data sets. Are they testing it on SDSS? I know part of it is from Hubble. I'm not actually sure if part of it's from SDSS. I can double check that. This sounds very similar to the structure we were talking about with respect to transient science last episode, though. So lots of people in the transient science community trying to develop algorithms and data sets in preparation for Vera Rubin Observatory, which is going to be a larger data set and faster coming in. So how are we going to sort through all this data quickly? Mm-hmm. As the data comes in, we, we don't have to wait. Which is more important for transient objects than it is for, say, galaxies, but it's still nice to know quickly, you know? No, it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I just double-checked, and it is all Hubble data, I believe, that they used in this particular paper that I'm talking about. Okay. And uh, how did it go? Does it seem like it's going to work? Yeah, their methods ended up working really nicely. They actually used two unsupervised methods and an image classification mechanism. So they were trying to be extremely hands-off they really wanted the Mm. user to have to put in as little information as possible and so they use these three different algorithms called growing neural gas is the first one hierarchical clustering is the second right you mentioned that yeah and then the last is connected component labeling Uh, so the first two of those are unsupervised and the third is just image processing so you said they're classifying galaxies morphologically Mm -hmm. yeah what classes do they have in the data set They're trying to come up with clusters of objects, right? So they don't have predefined classes. That's why it's unsupervised. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they ended up finding some pretty unusual objects, including like lensed galaxies and rare objects that you just don't see a ton of in the data sets, which I think is actually a pretty good argument for using unsupervised learning in these really enormous data sets because if you just use supervised learning then you're going to miss all the weird unusual objects because they don't fall into other categories that we know of yeah so if you don't know the category exists then you don't know to look for it that's a great motivation for using unsupervised Mm -hmm. totally agree yeah a lot of people call this anomaly detection where yeah you're just grouping different things and trying to find groups that fall outside of what you would expect to find in the data set to find i mean in transient science you'd expect to find uh, supernovae, things like that. But there are a couple right. of events that evolve completely differently than we would expect. And isolating those events from the thousands of events streaming in is really valuable. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So they applied their methods to a couple of different galaxy clusters because those are like the ideal laboratory for this type of data set or for this type of algorithm since you're looking at lots and lots of different kinds of galaxies, including redder early type elliptical galaxies and bluer late type spiral galaxies. This really confused me at first because I usually think of early type as meaning younger, but I think what it means here is earlier in the age of the universe. Uh, Actually, I'm pretty sure what it means is it's on the Hubble tuning fork 
We have to do a history lesson to explain this fully. <laughs> so the early and late type actually correspond to the location on Hubble's tuning fork diagram of galaxies. So when he was classifying the different shapes of galaxies, he made this sort of left to right orientation. And on the right, it splits into two fork prongs for ones with a bar in the center and ones without a bar in the center. Um, and it just depends on how tight the spiral is, uh, among other things. And so I think the idea was initially Hubble thought that they would evolve along this tuning fork. And now we know they don't, uh, but people still use those terms early type and late type. So do they have no meaning then? Yeah, I think it <laughs> it makes sense from the perspective of like an amorphous blob of a galaxy then forming structure over time, which is why Hubble thought that like elliptical galaxies, for example, would be on the early type and then on the late type you'd have spiral galaxies. But then it happens the other way around. So structure like spiral galaxies then kind of blend together over time. Uh, they get red and dead. You get elliptical galaxies that are then a lot older. So it's exactly the opposite of what he thought. But it's not always... Like it doesn't always go step to step. That's true. Right? Mm. Some some seem to come from different starting position and in a different place. There's so much about galaxy evolution we don't know or even have a clue about. And this is one of those just classic astronomer confusing terms that we desperately need to ditch. But Don't get me started on magnitudes. <laughs> <laughs> For real. <laughs> Actually, so uh, they, they ran their algorithm on the Hubble Candles program. Uh, okay which is part of the galaxy program or galaxy zoo program to try to see if people versus the algorithm gave you the same answers. And this came to mind because uh, a cool fact that I read while looking through this astrobite was that the candles program is specifically spelled C-A-N-D-E-L-S so that it wouldn't be confusing in Google searches and you could easily find it. And like reading that, I was like, wow, they really should have done that with genes length and, you know, so many other terms <laughs> that are just impossible to look up. The number of times I've searched <laughs> finding the right genes length or finding genes length and got pairs of genes. When I was in high school, the research project I did used a radio telescope called the Precision Array for Probing the Epoch of Reionization or paper, which is impossible hmm. to Google. <laughs> it is on the wikipedia disambiguation page for the word paper though awful okay. <laughs> yeah i mean i can imagine candles would be even worse because they're like standard oh, yeah. candles and everything so even candles astronomy would just be awful so it was a smart idea yeah yeah i'll keep that in mind for when i get to name a survey <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely so what are the next steps for this work then I think it's pretty much just to apply it to different data sets, to larger data sets. They ended up finding good agreement between their methods and the human classifications, which is pretty promising. Great. And like I said, they were able to pick out even these pretty rare classes and distinguish them from the other types of galaxies. So yeah, I think really just the next step is wait for Vera Rubin. It's going to be up pretty soon and just apply this on a much larger scale. Uh, which is pretty exciting. It's nice to have the tools available before the survey is actually up because then right when it goes up, then you have everything ready. Right, absolutely. You want to hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for bringing in that cool unsupervised learning bite. Thank you. And now we will transition to everyone's favorite segment, the astronomy space noise for machine learning in the age <laughs> of big data. 
<laughs> unsupervised. Unsupervised big data. <laughs> okay, I have a sound for you. Here we go. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hear something. Don't be scared. <laughs> Here comes the noise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can I think I just have to play it now No, you got this, you got this Just do a quick intro And it sounds a little something like this July the delivery platinum surged $13.10 Before settling at $622.90 an ounce Comma, up $12, period And there's a follow-up sound The mid-July increase came Even though automakers are offering incentives On fewer cars this year Than they did last year or earlier this year Okay, what was that? Can we guess? Yeah. I know there are many machine learning algorithms out there devoted to decomposing audio of many different voices on top of each other into their component individual people talking. So I'm going to guess that it's an algorithm. I forget. I don't know what the algorithm is, but run through to separate individual voices in an audio track. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. That sounds believable. That's my guess, too. <laughs> <laughs> that is the answer. Yeah, this was a pretty famous um, discovery when it initially came out about three years ago or so that you can use a deep clustering algorithm, which is, I think it's a neural net. They do talk about some unsupervised learning in the paper, but to my knowledge, I believe it's a neural net trained to separate voices from as many as like five people talking at once. There are YouTube videos of this. And famously, the uh, researcher who came out with this was working for Mitsubishi Electric. So it is now, you know, they, they are patented sort of an algorithm. And they, I don't know if they're using it yet, but they do own it. And they did discover it. They call this the cocktail party problem, right? Yeah. How to disentangle individual voices from a, a series of them. Mm. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. It's cool stuff. I don't know if we're at a point where it'll be applicable quite yet because a lot of the problems they have are it's relatively easy to distinguish one louder voice from a, from a cacophony of background mm-hmm. or it's it's not that hard quite yet to distinguish two or three from one another. But when there are like 20 equally loud voices, it, it fails. Also, it's become very irrelevant in the past few months. Who's having cocktail parties? i'm just saying when's the last time i heard five voices at the same time (laughs) that's true wow (laughs) my thought was applying it to speech to text algorithms but yeah i guess socially distanced uh group hangouts dictates that you'd only have a couple of voices in the room at any given time Let's all hope that we get to go back to a world where this is a problem again. (laughs) I love cocktail party problems. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Alex, you are up to bring us an astrobite. What do you got? All right. So my astrobite is called Analyzing Thermal Spectra with Machine Learning, written by Mitchell Cavanaugh, and it's based on a paper by Rhea and others that came out this year, just a few weeks ago. Now, where did these thermal spectra come from in space? So the thermal spectra come from galaxy clusters. Now, I think we've talked about galaxy clusters in the past in this show. Galaxy clusters are the largest gravitationally bound structures in the universe. And 
In the past, I think we focused more on the galaxies in the galaxy clusters, for obvious reasons, but it turns out there's a lot that isn't a galaxy in a galaxy cluster, namely superheated gas that holds the galaxy cluster together. What's superheated mean? This gas can get as hot as 100 million degrees Kelvin. So it's definitely ionized. Definitely ionized, and that'll be very important coming up. Is this the intergalactic medium, or is that something else? This is the intergalactic medium, correct, okay. in a huh. galaxy cluster. Right, so it's in between galaxies. Yes, Marina <laughs> has another question. Is it always hot, or does it have a ton of phases like the interstellar medium does? Y'all are clearly chomping at the bit for my <laughs> afterbite, and it, both of what you... So what you've said, Will, and what you've said, Melina, will both become very important aspects of this research. So as you've said, Will... At the temperatures that I've described, the gas is ionized, right? So you have lots of electrons bouncing around the cluster and you have lots of protons doing the same, but because protons are about 2,000 times heavier than electrons, they're moving slowly relative mm -hmm. to the electrons. So what happens in the cluster is when an electron flies by a proton, it gets deflected from its path as it feels the electric field of the proton pulling it in. Okay. And photons get shot out from that interaction, because technically this electron is being accelerated. Accelerating electrons emit light. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So this process is called thermal bremsstrahlung. Thermal, because it's caused by the temperature of the gas, and bremsstrahlung, because a German physicist coined the term. Bremsstrahlung actually is German for breaking radiation. At the temperature ranges that I've described, bremsstrahlung emission shows up in the X-ray which means that we can use X-ray observations of the superheated gas in galaxy clusters to better understand the physical properties of that cluster. So the history of galaxy mergers in the cluster, any potential AGN outflows from individual galaxies, things like that. But it turns out that you don't just have one homogeneous temperature across the entire cluster. Exactly as Malena said, you have lots of different temperatures. And so it's up to us to reconstruct from the X-ray emission the detailed temperature breakdown of the gas. I'm curious what types of galaxy clusters you're looking at, if they're at a particular distance. Uh, I assume because it's X-ray emission that is maybe confined to a particular redshift range? Yeah, my guess would be low redshift. I know they, right. they applied their algorithm to the Perseus cluster. I don't know the redshift of that, but yeah, I would guess pretty low redshift Okay. if they're trying to get X-ray. So the authors of this paper generated synthetic Chandra X-ray spectra with a variable number of thermal components to the simulated gas, and then they used principal component analysis to get the principal components of the spectral data from that X-ray emission, and they then trained a random forest algorithm to recover the number of thermal components from the spectra. All right, that is a complicated sentence. It is. Yeah. Yes. What is principal component analysis? Let's dive into it. So principal component analysis, we alluded to this in the introduction. When you have a rich data set with tons of different features, it can be really hard to identify groups because you can't pull up a hundred dimensional plot and just throw the observations in there and see what they look like. Even more than two dimensions, and it's hard to represent with like a contour plot. Right. Matplotlib can maybe do three dimensions. It cannot do 100 dimensions. Yeah. So it's often useful to reduce the dimensions while keeping the similarities and differences between different observations within your data set. So this is what principal component analysis can do for you. It finds a series of vectors. This is technically the eigenvectors of the covariance matrix of your observations. And the covariance matrix describes how spread out your values are. 
So the principal components that you get, these eigenvectors, are linear combinations of your individual features. And the idea is that the principal components are orthogonal to each other, and each principal component maximizes the variance, the spread of your data along that axis. So with they're ordered with the first principal component having the most spread you can have along one axis, the second principal component having the second largest amount of spread perpendicular to the first principal component, etc., etc. So the hope is that you can break down a very large data set with a lot of different features into just a couple of principal components, say the first five or the first 10, which contain most of the information of the original data, but that you can then plot and directly see differences and similarities. Now, a principal component is not like a dimension. So a principal component will have multiple features within it. Correct. Yeah. You can think about this like a change of basis. Okay. If you're more familiar with that. So mm -hmm. you're creating a basis based on a linear combination of different features in your data. So exactly like you said, one principal component could be constructed of many features, but you have one principal component and then a second, and then you can maybe plot this in a, a two-dimensional plot and get a lot of the structure that you would have as a function of many, many dimensions in the original data set. Okay, so instead of your data set being divided based on the observations, it's divided based on what's most likely to uh, correlate to actual physical features. That's the hope, yes. So, okay. so to give you a little more tangible example, Will, I'd like you to use three words to describe Milena. Um, smart. Thanks. Laugh. I don't know if that's an adjective, but it's true. Mm -hmm. I said words. And nice. Okay. So you can think of those three as principal components to describe Milena, right? So when you okay. see Milena and when you talk to her, there's obviously a very rich data set there. And when you're describing Milena to somebody else, it would be complicated if you described every single strand of hair and where it's located. But if you use so those accurate. three words that you have, <laughs> though it would be more accurate, you'd hope that the principal components that you've developed said something more fundamental and allowed that person to reconstruct an idea of who Milena was without needing every single data point from Milena. Huh. That that helps a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm a good example. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we understand what PCA is and why you would want to use it. Now you said that they made this fake spectra data with a lot of thermal emissions because there are a lot of different temperatures. So I guess to the eye, it's like all confused and it's kind of looks like noise. Right. Yeah. They're all blended together into one continuous emission spectra. And so the hope is that you can disentangle the different temperature components from that. And the PCA is supposed to disentangle it. So the PCA is supposed to give you as much information as you can from the spectra without retaining all of the data. And they then passed those principal components from each spectrum into a random forest algorithm to classify does this thermal emission spectra have one, two, three, or four components to the temperature? Okay, because it could have any number and different strength of those temperatures. I think they were mainly focused on just classifying the number of uh, components. Oh, okay, I see. Complicated methodology, but the punchline is that they found their classification algorithm with their random forest their accuracy varies between 80 and 95% for the principal component analysis data. And they know what the 100% is because they built the fake data set. Exactly, because it's a fake data set. That's smart. But they found that 
the accuracy can drop as low as 60% if they used the spectra directly without the principal component step. If they just put it into the random forest, you're saying? Exactly. Hmm. Oh, exactly. Wow. So the unsupervised does the first pass, like we said it should. Exactly. So it's it seems like principal component analysis is actually very valuable for identifying the significant features in this spectra. So that means that principal component analysis, and I'm not sure, maybe other types of unsupervised learning can be used for data cleaning before you use supervised methods then? Yeah, I don't know if I would call it cleaning, but it yeah, it's a, a pre-processing step for sure in that it can maybe highlight individual features that can be significant for classification. Right. I guess why I call it cleaning is because you're look when you're looking for the principal components, you're trying to throw away as much erroneous information as possible, right? So in a way that sort of is cleaning because you're keeping the primary information and throwing away quote unquote noise, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's all it's all spectra, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't have to necessarily, I guess it depends on what your definition of noise is in this particular case. But yeah, I think their argument is that simplifying the data set to only highlight the things that you want to look for that will help you in classification is what PCA can do for you. So yeah, I guess in a sense that would be cleaning the data. When I think data cleaning, I think like an intern who got a bunch of Excel formats that are all (laughs) over the place and their periods in the wrong place and they have to go through and they have to make it kind of match up. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like priming the data, making it it easier to use. Yeah, highlighting the most significant features and trying to throw away the ones that, while they may be valuable data for another analysis are not relevant for this particular type of classification. Mm-hmm. So where does it go from here? Well, I will mention the code is publicly available on GitHub. The package nice. is called Pumpkin after the first author's cat. <laughs> mm. There's and... a good cat picture on the website too. I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and they mentioned that this analysis can also be done on data from XMM-Newton, Athena, or XRISM in addition to Chandra. So it seems like future observations can use this same pipeline, although they do warn that the Chandra CCDs have been degrading over time. So the response to X-ray emission is changing and it's not completely clear how much worse it'll do on Chandra observations long into the future because of this degradation. Very cool. Thank you for bringing that excellent unsupervised learning bite. Of course. (laughs) So now let's uh, get into our one sentence summaries. Milena, why don't you lead us off there? Unsupervised learning is an efficient way to pick out and classify different galaxy types, especially in the upcoming era of big data when you want to see both unusual and common objects and put them in different boxes. Alex? Throw on your x-ray goggles and you'll see galaxy clusters in a whole new light, but only with unsupervised learning to help you decode the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Stretch of the metaphor. <laughs> now, in the other two parts of this series, we've talked about the failure modes of the different types of machine learning, where they go wrong, where they can lead you astray. So, my big question is where does unsupervised learning fail? Well, I guess one thing that immediately comes to mind is depending on the algorithm you use, like for example, k means clustering, you might pick the wrong number of clusters or PCA, you might pick to choose the wrong number of components and just throw away interesting information. Um, So I think as with other machine learning methods, knowing to some extent what it is that you expect is helpful, at least. 
uh, which it's tricky because unsupervised learning is particularly useful for data exploration. And so maybe it's just that there there is still to some extent some human touch to it where you would want to try a couple of different things. You would need to explore a variety of different types of clusters. You can't just say, I'm going to try k-means clustering. We're going to find five clusters and those are going to be real categories. Um, if you tell the algorithm to do something that isn't going to come up with something realistic, then it will give you an answer and it might not necessarily be realistic. So always the interpretation is kind of difficult and you kind of need to with data exploration, make sure that you're thoroughly exploring. Yeah, I totally agree with that. We talked about principal component analysis, which is a linear dimensionality reduction method. There are lots of nonlinear dimensionality reduction methods, mm. which are more complex. They can be very valuable, but a lot of times interpretability is hard because if you find individual clusters, it's not clear whether those clusters represent some underlying physical mechanisms separating those observations or whether it's just based on the underlying stochasticity of the mm -hmm. algorithm itself that's leading to those different groups. And so a lot of times, yeah, exactly like Milena said, you have to explore lots and lots of different algorithms uh, that are unsupervised to make sure you're getting robust results every time and not just uh, something that popped up in that one particular iteration of the method. In my experience in grad school, even the linear features are complicated enough that I barely understand them. To go to the nonlinear, second order and higher uh, features is, ends up being too much in most cases. <laughs> yeah, it probably depends on the case, but you know, simpler is better when it works, so. Absolutely. Now we've covered three prominent types of machine learning. So if I were going through my research and I discovered that random forest classification might be useful for me, I think I would know vaguely how to apply it, or I would know when it might be useful when I'm looking at a classification problem. I would zero in on that one. Do you feel comfortable using one of these methods in your research? Like, would you, would you be itching to try it? Principal component analysis and one of the nonlinear dimensionality reduction methods called TSNE were both involved in my ghost paper that I talked about last episode. Nice. So those I do feel comfortable implementing. <laughs> Yeah, I think it really depends on the method for me. <laughs> there are some methods that I feel a little bit more comfortable than others. I would say there is no machine learning algorithm that I truly feel I could like write out all the math for you and actually give you all the information and background that goes into it. Uh, there are PhDs devoted to this. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on under the hood in a lot of machine learning algorithms. I do feel that there are machine learning algorithms that I'd be comfortable applying, uh, knowing that they have been tried and tested by other people. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's not to say that I have like the full theoretical underpinning. It's something that I'm actively always trying to learn about, always trying to read more. But, you know, it's tough. There's a lot. There's so many algorithms in there. And how to know when to use what, I think, is probably one of the most difficult questions. Because you can see here in these works, they used several different algorithms for each of these projects right. and like how do you pick one you have to i guess just have read about a bunch of algorithms and have some sense for what they all do or maybe they tried just a crazy number of things yeah that's also an option they saw growing neural gas and they were like gotta <laughs> use that somehow <laughs> yeah that's true there are tutorials everywhere online now where it can be very easy to implement an unsupervised learning method and 
the mathematical underpinning underneath it or the interpretation of the results that you get might be a little shaky. And so, mm. yeah, you got to make sure you play around with a bunch of different ones or just have an idea of what you would expect to get before you plug in your data so that when you get the output, you're not just fumbling trying to justify the results. Well, that's the empirical approach. You build a test data set, you know, so you have your own sandbox where you can experiment and try a bunch of methods and whatever one does reasonably good on a sample of test data, then you use. And then the theoretical approach is you understand all of these, you write a bunch of equations, you say, okay, this one really should work. And then you apply it. And of course it never does, but at least you have an understanding deeply of how these things work. And that's kind of the trade-off in science is you got to, you got to use some combination of theoretical and empirical to get a method that's going to work. Right. Absolutely. Imagine for a second that we all left astronomy and were working as data scientists at, say, a firm or in-house at a large company. And you were given a wealth of data and a goal saying, you know, over this number of weeks, I want you to use this data and develop a way for us to do this for the company. Would you say, I'm just going to go right to machine learning because it's probably going to be the quickest way to get the answer? Or would you say, I am going to build a model to predict, to understand the fundamental factors, the real underlying forces shaping what goes from the input to the output? And then when you get an output, you will understand why much better. I think in order to do the first option, you also have to do the second option. <laughs> so really? my my immediate instinct is both because, you know, garbage in, garbage out with machine learning. If you don't know what you're trying to do, then you're not really going to get anything meaningful out of it. Um, I think personally, I'd probably spend the first day or two thinking very carefully about what I would actually expect. Um, and then I would, from there, go on thinking about how to actually implement it. Probably go and browse some scikit-learn for a while, maybe spend a couple mm. days just looking through a bunch of different pages and examples. Um, yeah, I mean, a few weeks is actually... Not so bad for a machine learning problem, uh, assuming your data's already cleaned, and that the algorithms are not that difficult to implement. It's just a matter of getting your data into a nice shape to actually put it in the algorithm. Okay. And then also, if you have a huge amount of data, I assume this company is wealthy and has, like, <laughs> I don't know, some sort of high-performance computing network. Yeah, <laughs> I would GPUs say so. GPUs and everything. And yeah. So, yeah, maybe it would be fine. If they hired us, they got to be a pretty good company. <laughs> yeah. so, they have money. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, what do you think? Why would I, you do it? I think it's a really interesting question because, so my undergrad was in computational modeling and data analytics was the name of the degree formally. Wow. And Alex is, Alex is much more qualified at this than we are. <laughs> That's true. And much more unqualified with respect to astrophysics. <laughs> but a lot of my friends went into data science uh, careers, industries after undergrad. And a lot of the spots they were hired in were positions where you wouldn't really expect machine learning to play a role, like in the automotive industry. Uh, huh. And a lot of these companies that hired them said, we're starting a machine learning branch and we know machine learning is valuable and we need you to tell us what we can do with machine learning. Hmm. And so I think that's a very interesting case because then you have a person with little to no domain expertise but a lot of machine learning expertise sure. trying to find the problems that machine learning can answer. I think that can be very valuable because they know the methods and can get a sense for what you can apply for different problems. 
But as you alluded to, that can also be dangerous in the sense that if you don't really know what you're looking for, then you can pull up trends that make you think something exists. Whereas if you don't really know the industry, then you don't have a good sense for whether that reflects physical intuition. That's what teamwork's for. (laughs) (laughs) With that, we will conclude episode 23 of Astro Soundbites, the Stargazing Automata Part 3, Unsupervised Learning. Take a look at the show notes to see the links to the Astrobytes we talked about, Space Sound Today, and some other neat things we talked about on the show. You can leave us feedback on our website, astrosoundbites.com. If you have an idea for an upcoming show, or even say a burning question, we might actually use it as inspiration. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>